So uh, you all know this about me. I'm a big movie fan. I love movies. I love going to see movies. My favorite way of going to see movies. Uh, I like to go see like the earliest movie show possible, um, the, the matinee, like the super early bird matinee. And I like to go by myself. I know it's kind of a weird thing, but it's like it's one of those things for me. It's just I love enjoying movies without the pressure of having to like make sure the person sitting next to me, even as my family, are having a good time. Like you like this. I like to just go and sit and absorb movies. I love movies. I'm a big movie fan. Um, so this this series that we're kicking off. I love this. I, I kind of did a little research. Universal Studios, which is one of the largest stu movie studios, movie producers uh, on the planet, they actually broke into, the way they got into the movie business started in the 1930s, uh, and the way they kind of broke into the industry was by being the first movie studio to really specialize in making monster movies, right? So that's how Universal got their start. You know, Universal now, they've got theme parks and all this kind of stuff, but, but Universal, where it got its start, its roots are in being the first movie studio to kind of exclusively, for the first time ever, make monster movies. They started in the 1930s. 1931, Bela Lugosi brought Dracula to life for the very first time. And so here's what they did. Universal started in 1931, they released Dracula, and they went on over the next 20 years, 20 years from 19, the 1930s and the 1950s, they made 41 monster movies over a 20-year period. Right, so everything from like Frankenstein and the Invisible Man to like, which I'm sure was the, like the easiest cast to, to like, how do you cast the Invisible Man? You just don't cast anybody at all, right? Pretty simple way to make that movie. So Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, the Mummy, right, Creature from the Black Lagoon, all those kinds of things, the Wolfman, all have their roots back in Universal movies, like Universal Studios movies. But here's the thing, if you go back and watch some of these movies, or even if you watch kind of the modernized versions of these movies, there's a few traits that all of these monsters have in common. Number one, many monsters, many of the monsters that we kind of look at or many of the monsters that, that we see, right, they can disguise themselves so that they look and seem harmless at first. Like most of these monsters, like the scariest part, for me at least, the scariest part of a monster movie is the fact that they walk among us, right, and that we have no idea. Why? Because they can disguise themselves. They can seem harmless. The second kind of trait is this. Th there's usually something that happens. There's some moment, some event, right, that kind of triggers or sets off, right? There's something that happens that causes the monsters to reveal their true nature, Right? For Dracula, it's like the sight of blood. He sees blood and then the fangs come out. You know, for the wolf man, it's a full moon. Right? That, that kind of a thing. Right? So there's some sort of event. There's something that happens that kind of is a trigger. It sets off that, that, that moment where that monster then reveals their, their true nature. And then the third thing is this. Every monster, even though they seem indestructible at first, has a weakness. Right? They, they seem scary, they seem big, they seem strong, they seem indestructible. Every single monster has some sort of weakness. Right? For Dracula, it's a stake through the heart. It's sunlight, right? those kinds of things. Right? For the wolfman, it, it's a silver bullet. For the mummy, it's fire. And I actually looked this one up because I'm trying to look up all the different weaknesses of these kind of classic monsters. And no joke, the, the mummy's weakness is fire. And then next to it, when I Googled it, there's this explanation of that because he's old, because the mummy is old, dry, and crusty, and wears, like, flammable cloth. He's super flammable, right? So the mummy is, like, he catches fire really easily. He's, he's very burnable. So fire is his main weakness, right? So as scary as these monsters might be, 
there's always some sort of way to take them down. There's a way to take them down. There's a way uh, to kill them, right? So now we know this. I said this last week. We know that we're not talking about monster movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. We're talking about the very real monsters that we face and that we deal with every day. These real monsters that, that they walk among us. And most of the time, we kind of go through life completely oblivious to the danger that is a reality, a danger that is nearby, a danger that is always around us. Many of us, and this is even scarier, some of these monsters are already living inside of our lives, right? It's like the movie Alien. If you've ever seen the movie Alien, we're like, wah, wah, like that. You know, it's like, it's like there's something growing, and it's waiting for the right moment to then burst out of us. And Andy Stanley wrote a book a while ago called It Came From Within, and he says this, that, that within most of us is an embryo of an invader that has the potential to destroy us has the potential to destroy us along with those who are closest to us. It enters our lives undetected, and it grows, its growth goes unobserved. That's scary. And what happens is this. One day, one day something happens. Something happens in our lives. There's an event. There's a moment. Something happens in our lives, and just like those monsters, whether it's the sight of blood, a full moon, or whatever, there's this trigger that sets us off. And the monsters that live around us, or maybe even the monsters that live inside of us, they reveal their true nature. And we never saw it coming. And because of that, we're easy prey. It's easy for monsters to pick us off. These monsters, they, they take us over. And maybe you've had this. It's kind of like an out-of-body experience. right? There's that moment that sets us off. And we can hear ourselves. Like, we can hear ourselves talking. We can even kind of feel ourselves acting and moving. Like, we can see what's going on around us, but, but we're completely out of control. Something else has grabbed control of our lives. And we can hear ourselves saying things to our spouses, saying things to our friends, or, or even treating coworkers in a certain way. We're saying things and we're doing things that we thought we'd never say or we thought we'd never do. We have thoughts there are thoughts that pop into our minds. There are feelings that, that kind of show up in our hearts and in our emotion. And those thoughts and those feelings seem completely and totally alien in nature. All of a sudden, we've got this appetite that's unquenchable, right? And we want to consume everything and everyone around us. And in the aftermath, when we see all the damage that we've done, when we see, we see all of the carnage around us, we, we think and we say and we wonder, where did that come from? Like, I, I, maybe you've had this conversation with your spouse, or maybe you've had this conversation with a friend or a coworker. Like, listen, I, I don't know what came over me. I, I, don't, I, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I treated you this way. I'm, I, I'm sorry. One of, my, one of my favorite movies is Aliens, the sequel to the original. And there's a, there's a scene in this movie that's, like, that's one of the scariest scenes in the movie, and it doesn't even have a monster in it, right? There's this moment where Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley, is talking to this little girl, Newt, that they rescued in this, in this facility where these aliens have just gone through and wiped everybody out. She's the sole survivor. And this little girl who's been surviving by herself on this planet with all of these creatures looks up at, at Sigourney Weaver's character and says, how come adults tell kids that monsters aren't real when they are? Monsters are real, aren't they? And then Sigourney Weaver Ripley looks back at her and says, yeah, they are. And this little girl looks back and says, why do adults tell kids that if it's not true? And then this is like one of those like kind of spine-tingling moments. Ripley looks back at the little girl and says, well, most of the time it is. 
but some of the time it's not. So there are real monsters. Yes, there are real monsters. But as scary and as indestructible as they may seem, they all have a weakness. And over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at. That's what we're going to be talking about. We are going to be learning how to kind of face down and take down the monsters of greed, envy, and selfishness in our lives. So just get, I'm going to give you a quick flyby, and then we'll go through each one of these over the next few weeks. Envy, when we talk about envy, envy is this green-eyed monster. It is the monster of our hearts. It is the monster of our soul. Envy poisons and infects nearly every part of who we are. Right? It turns us into some other creature. It turns us into some other completely different type of animal. Selfishness. Selfishness, if, you're big, if, you're, if you are a, a big Stranger Things fan, selfishness is like the mind flayer, right? It, it takes over your thoughts. It takes over our thoughts. It consumes our thoughts. So that all we think about is ourselves. We don't think about other people. We just think about us. It consumes our thoughts. And greed, which is what we're going to talk about today, is the monster that kind of takes over our appetites. Greed is kind of like this unstoppable eating machine. So if you kind of want to compare it to like a, a, a horror movie villain, you could compare it to Jaws, right? The 30-foot great white shark that just ate and killed everything in its, in its path. That's what you can kind of compare greed to. It, it affects our appetites. Greed affects our appetites to the point where we're never satisfied. We're never satisfied. There's this unquenchable desire for more and more and more. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you or your Bible apps, go ahead and grab those. We're going to be living in Luke chapter 12 today. So throughout this series, we're going to be focusing in on the teachings of Jesus, right? And I'll get into this more in a minute. But like, we're going to be looking at some of the things that Jesus taught when it came to greed, envy, and selfishness, some of the people that he encountered. And we, we, I want us to really pay attention to how Jesus treated People who were greedy, envious, and selfish, right? Because it's not like how we treat people that are greedy, envious, and, and, and selfish. I mean, Jesus took some time to explain some things. Jesus was patient with them, right? But Jesus was also honest. Jesus didn't let it slide, right? He didn't. So we're going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus over the next few weeks. We're going to be kind of living in the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today we're going to live in Luke chapter 12. Uh, so if you're flipping in your Bibles, you can open up to, to Luke chapter 12. Uh, and here's what it says, in, starting in verse 15. And he, Jesus, he says to them, take care, be on your guard against all greed. If you're reading the ESV Bible, it says covetousness, right? But it says greed, right? So guard against all kinds of greed. He said, and Jesus says this, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, just a little bit of context here. The reason that Jesus is talking about greed is because two guys, Jesus is in the middle of teaching, he's in the middle of unpacking truth, and two brothers get in a fight, like right in the middle of church, over money, right? Two brothers in the middle of church get in a fight, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 time out. And one of them looks at Jesus and says, settle this for us, Jesus. Fix our money problems. Let me just say this. Um, if, you're in, if you are going to start a fight in the middle of church about money, um, and you go to Jesus for truth, expect it, Right? Expect truth to, to come your way. So Jesus, in this moment, he's, he's stepping into this argument between two men in church, in the middle of, of Jesus' teaching, and he's going to talk about greed. But one other verse I want us to, to look at before we dive into this is, is just to see that this is something that is taught about a lot. right In the Bible, 
in the New Testament, Old Testament, right, Jesus talks about money a lot. He talks about possessions a lot. Paul, when he writes letters to churches, communities, families of people like us that are learning to live the with God life, right, he talks about this. Like, this is something, this was a monster that was as real for people back then as it is for us right now. Right? So when we look at the Bible, sometimes it's easy to go, well, this is a 2,000-year-old story. There's no way they, they dealt with the same kinds of things that we deal with in 2023. You're wrong. They did. Right? It was, it was just a much a monster then. It was dangerous then, just like it is now. Paul says this. He says this in, in Colossians 3. He says, put to death, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Right? Monster. It's not a monster around you. This monster is growing inside of you. Right? He said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Covetousness. Again, if you're reading the ESV. And he said, Paul takes it one step further and says, it's, it's idolatry. He says, on, on, the, on account of these, Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put them all away doesn't mean to pack them up and shove them in a closet in your life. Put them all away doesn't mean to hang on to them, just put them into storage. Put them all away means put them all away, right? Like He's like going like, like put them away, like gangster, right? That's kind of what, what, what Paul's doing here. He's like, you got to kill this stuff. You can't let this live. So I want to press pause right here. Because before we dive into some of Jesus' teaching in this, I want us to get our, our, our arms and our brains around what greed is in the first place. So first question is this, what is greed? What is greed? The word that we see for greed in, in, the, in the, the Bible in the New Testament, it's a Greek word that literally translates to this, avarice, which is a word that we don't use much, right? This word avarice, it means an extreme desire, an extreme desire for wealth or material gain. That's what avarice means. The Greek word for, 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 for greed is where we get the words like voracious, Right? That's a word, again, we don't use that much. But we start thinking about, like, where is greed rooted? What's greed rooted in? What's greed all about? It's where we get the word voracious. The word voracious means it refers to our appetites. It means to devour in great quantities. Like, you're not, not just consuming, not just eating, right? You're devouring. Not just a little bit, great quantities. So when we talk about what is greed, we start to answer this question. Here's what I want, want us to understand, right? Greed is not the healthy desire that many of us have to take our families on vacation. That's not what greed is. We're not talking about, greed is not the healthy desire that some of us have, right, especially in light of all the, the broken pipes, right, to, to, to like, this, there's a need to, to kind of replace old broken appliances in our kitchen, right? Like, greed is not this healthy desire to go, you know what, this stuff is broken in my house, and I need to get a new one. Greed is not the healthy desire to buy new clothes from time to time. It's not the healthy desire that we have to drive a reliable car that we know can get us from point A to point B. Greed is not the healthy desire to live in a good neighborhood. It's not. That's not what greed is. See, there are these desires that we have in our lives for certain things that actually, as long as we keep them in check, are really healthy. They're healthy. They're good. Greed, and I want to be, again, if you're, if you're taking notes or you grab a picture of this, here's the definition. Greed, from a biblical perspective, is this. It's an extreme, addictive, unhealthy desire, obsession, and dependence on wealth and possessions. All right, get that. Understand that. It's, it's not, this isn't just like, oh, you know what, I really hope, I'm saving up. I'm saving up to take my family on a vacation. 
right? We, we, we talked about it. We're willing to kind of sacrifice to maybe let some things go so that we can put some money away this summer, whatever. We're going to take, take our family on a nice. That's not what this is. Like greed, again, from a biblical perspective, it is an extreme addiction. It's addictive. It's an unhealthy desire. It's sick. Right? If we're just to be honest, we'll, we'll kind of stop pulling punches. It's sick. It's a sick obsession and dependence on wealth and material possessions. But greed, in the Greek, refers to our appetites. Right? It talks about this. There's, this, there's this, this appetite, there's this hunger you want. And all you can think of, all you can think about and all you desire is more. You need more. You need more. There's actually a study going on right now. It's called the tyranny of more. Where there's actually biological things that happen within us that, that we desire more. And when we get our hands on something, we get this dopamine hit, right? When we get the thing, the object of our desire, the object of our, our obsession, whatever that is, there's this dopamine hit that happens in our brains when we get that thing, when we, when we want that thing, right? We get a hold of it. Guess what happens? As soon as you get it, that dopamine hit goes right out and gets replaced by another one. So you had all this desire for this thing, and you finally get it, and you feel good for about a split second. And then guess what? The good feeling, the good vibes are gone. And now you want something more and more and more and more. They've done studies that right now, the, the, some of the research I was reading about the tyranny of more is that they looked at the studies of, of, of folks where, that kind of gave in to that, gave in to that, that, that tyranny, and they look at the folks who then didn't do that, right, that instead of, and we're going to talk more about generosity next week, but instead of just consuming, kind of pressed in and leaned into generosity, the, those that give things away, their feelings of happiness last like 30 times longer. Like the feeling of satisfaction, the feeling of completeness, the feeling of peace and joy and wholeness lasts 30 times longer for those who give away than those who consume. That's not an accident. There's a reason God wired us the way that he wired us. But when it comes to greed, here's what we need to know. It's an unhealthy, sick desire and obsession to consume more, more, and more. And here's how we know, here's how we know that greed is a monster. It's not just something to be careful of. It's not just something to watch out for. It's not just a little thing that you, you know, you might just, just make sure, take care, right? Greed's a monster. And here's how we know. One, Jesus tells us, to always be on the lookout for it. Not just, hey, keep this in mind, plant this in the back of your head somewhere. Like, no, Jesus says, always be on guard against greed. Paul says, flat out, kill it. Like, don't let it live. It's a real threat. It's a real, if Jesus tells you to always be on guard against something, and Paul tells you to flat out kill something, here's what you know. It's a real threat, and it's really dangerous. And in this case, at its core, Greed is not about where you live. It's not about your address. It's not about your zip code. Greed is not about the stuff that's parked in your garage. Greed is not about what it says on your bank statement. Greed is not a stuff thing. Greed is not a money thing. It's a life thing. I read this one commentary I read this past week. says, when it comes to greed, the issue of greed revolves around the very nature of life itself. Take that in for just a second. I read that, and I had to read that sentence a few times. This is how serious greed is. The issue of greed revolves around the very nature of life itself. Greed seeks possessions 
at any and all costs, which are not to be equated with true living, the life that Jesus wants for us, the abundant life that he talks about in John 10. And it says this, in fact, they become a substitute for the proper object of man's search and worship, which is God. Therefore, greed isn't just simply misplaced desire, it is idolatry. What is that? What's idolatry and why is that such a big deal? Well, for Jesus, dealing with greed wasn't just dealing with wealth and possessions. For Jesus, it was bigger than that. For Jesus, like I said, it's a life issue. For Jesus, greed, dealing with greed, really boiled down to, it was all about answering really one question, a faith question. And this is that question. Who or what is ultimate in your life? Who or what is ultimate in your life? Whatever that is. Whoever that is. Think about it right now. Who or what is ultimate in your life? And here's how you know, right? You believe in them and you have confidence in them that whoever or whatever they are, they're going to be the ones who will best take care of you and give you what you need. Whatever fills in that blank, kind of at the end of that equation, that's what's ultimate in your life. That's what you have faith in. Whatever you have faith in is something that ultimately you'll make the, the ultimate thing in your life. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop about, about us making things ultimate, right? Here's what happens. Whatever or whoever you and I have faith in and make ultimate, which means we believe in and we trust them, we have, we have more belief in whoever or whatever that is. We have more confidence in whoever or whatever that is that they're going to be the thing that can best take care of us and best provide for us and give us what we need, right? Whatever we believe in and trust will also get our faithfulness, which is a dedicated way of living. So it's not just that we believe in and trust. We will dedicate our lives to the things that we allow to become ultimate, right? And so there's a reason. There's a reason that Jesus talked and taught about money, wealth, and possessions more than anything else. It wasn't a, a matter of him wanting more stuff or wanting more money. Jesus didn't teach about this stuff because he says, you know what I want? Money. Right? That's, Jesus didn't say, you know what I really want? A house. A nice house. I want a nice chariot with a really fast camel. Right? Like that wasn't, like I want the Tesla camel that you plug in. Right? Like he wasn't, it wasn't that. Like that's not what Jesus was after. Like Jesus, was, he didn't talk about this because he wanted it. For Jesus, dealing with things like greed is really a matter of faith. It's what we make ultimate. That's why Jesus makes a big deal about it. It's what you and I say, I'm going to let this thing sit on the throne of my life and be in charge. Why? Because I believe in it and I trust it. It's a matter of faith and it's also a matter of faithfulness. Because whatever sits on the throne of your life, whatever it is or whoever they are, you will dedicate your life to them. It's just a matter of time. It's how we're wired. So material wealth and possessions, those are the things that Jesus competes with the most for the ultimate space in our lives. That's Jesus' number one competition for this throne of our lives. It, it, it's some sort of wealth, status, possessions, those kinds of things. And here's the deal. When it comes to faith, faith and faithfulness, Jesus, he ain't settling for second place. Jesus is not cool with getting the silver medal in your life. He's not. He's not. He's not going to take second place to a false idol. He's not okay with that. And he goes on, he says this in verse 16, Luke 12. And he told him a parable, and he said this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And this rich man thought to himself, 
what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And then he said, well, I'll do this. I'll just tear down the barns that I have, and I'll build bigger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, catch that. If you've if you got your Bible in front of you, highlight, underline, circle, I will say to my soul. Why? Because it's not just material. It's not just material wealth and possessions. It's not just physical wealth and possessions. It's not the, It's spiritual. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Here's what you can do. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. On the things that you have prepared, who, whose will those be? All these things that you have, your life is required for you. This night, it's the end. This night, I'm taking your life. All this stuff that you've stored up in these bigger barns that you're going to build for yourself, who gets that now? And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich, generous towards God. A few years ago, I got to hear a guy named Kenny Hart, who's a pastor and a church planner in Harlem. He was preaching on this very subject, and he pointed out something that's pretty profound when it comes to this. In the Bible... The opposite of wisdom, the opposite of wisdom or being wise isn't being dumb, right? Sometimes when we think about someone that's wise, we go, wise equals smart, right? The opposite of smart is dumb, not smart, right? So we think, well, the opposite of wisdom then is just like it's dumb. Like if you're not wise, then you're dumb. That's not the case, right? It's not about intelligence. Wisdom isn't about intelligence. In fact, wisdom in the Bible, we've talked about this a lot in here, the the, the word for wisdom literally means skilled living, being good at life. So the opposite of wisdom isn't being dumb. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness or being a fool, which that word really means you live in such a way that you waste your life. That's what foolishness is. Wisdom is skilled living, right? Wisdom is a life of meaning and purpose. Foolishness is a life that's wasted. It's a wasted life. In the story, Jesus, he calls the greedy guy a fool. And he says that it's foolish to give into and live your life under the influence of the monster of greed. And now you can see why greed is such a big deal to Jesus. Greed, if left unchecked, if not guarded against and allowed to go on living, will cause us to waste our lives. That's a scary thought. I don't know about you. Maybe it's my personality. But the thought of my life being a waste, having no purpose and no meaning, that's terrifying. That's like one of the scariest monsters there is. So Jesus, he didn't come to live his life, the life that he lived, right? He didn't didn't die the death that he died. He didn't resurrect and put to death, you know, sin and death. He didn't end those things, right, so that that we could waste our lives. He didn't do that so that we could just go, you know what? I know there's an opportunity for real meaning and purpose, but, you know, I I just feel like wasting my life. And I'm going to do that by making material wealth and possessions and those kinds of things ultimate. I'm going to let greed sit on the throne of my life. Jesus, he came to give us the ability to have a full life. We talk about adventure called the with God life, right? It's a relationship with God. And in that relationship comes true meaning and true purpose and true peace and true satisfaction. Jesus is where better life comes from. 
But I want us to catch something, right? I want us to catch something in Jesus' parable. If you've got your Bibles open, again, we're going to kind of go back through this, right? This greedy guy, he wasn't just going to build bigger barns so he could kick back and, and relax for the rest of his life. I want you to notice something, right? He didn't actually do it. He just thought about it. He didn't actually go, he didn't actually go to start tear down, tearing down his barns and building bigger ones to hold all the stuff. He just thought about it. I think some of us in the room, and the reason I want to point this out, we hear about greed. We hear about this extreme addiction, this unhealthy desire, this obsession, this dependence on wealth and possessions. And we go, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm not greedy. Like, that's not, I don't, I, so I'm, I'm super glad I don't struggle with that, right? I super, I'm super, I'm, I'm glad I don't do that. Yeah, but have you thought about it? Have you thought about it? Have you kind of let your appetite go there just a little bit? Remember, it's not just about wealth, wealth and possessions. It's about what you and I choose to make ultimate. It's about what you and I believe will take care of us and provide, provide us with what we need. It's what we believe will do that the best, it's not a stuff thing. Greed's not a stuff thing. It's a life thing. Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about, if I had more money, then I'd be happy? Clearly, you weren't listening to P. Diddy. More money, more problems, right? Like, if you had that, like, if you thought, just for a second, if I had more money, then I'd be happy. If I had more money, then I could stop stressing. If we had more money, then we could live in the right neighborhood. We could send our kids to the right school. If I only had more power, if I only had more authority, more status, more influence, if I could only get my hands on more of that, you know what? Then life would be good. If I had more power, if I had more status, more authority, if I was more important, you know what? More people would want to spend time with me. If I had more of that, then I'd be less lonely. If I have more money, maybe I'll be less stressed. If I have more influence, maybe I'll be less lonely. I'd be sought out, sought after. I'd be sought out. Have you ever even for a second let your hunger and your appetite for those things get off the chain? They kind of start to become a focus of your life. Like you're not just hungry for it. You're not just hungry for it. Here's what happens. You start to figure out what it would take. What's it going to cost? What do I have to do to get that? And you go from that place, you start to justify the means. Like, yeah, I could do that. It would be okay. We talk about the word justify means just as if I. You haven't done it. You haven't done anything about it. But in your head and your heart, it's just as if you did. You just thought about it. Have you ever thought, just for a second, if I could make whatever that is, that thing that I long for, that thing that I obsess over, if I could just make that a reality, then, then I would feel satisfied. I have. I don't know about you, but I've done that. I've let that appetite off the chain before. I've started, I've started thinking through, like, you know what? What would it, t what would it take to actually get that? Like, what would it take for me to get that? What would it take for that to, what, what would it take for that to, to become a reality in my life? And it's not just wanting it anymore, right? I'm starting to believe that whatever it is will actually provide for me. I'm starting to map out, maybe you're starting to map out a lifestyle that will get you what you want. 
Why? Because it's becoming ultimate in your life. And now whatever that is has your faith. You believe in it. You trust it. It has my faith. I believe in it and I trust it. And as soon as it has our faith, it has our faithfulness. We start to dedicate our lives to it. So here's what this means. The fact that I've done that, I've let myself go there, here, and here, it makes me no better than the fool in this story. And I'm guessing probably most of us in the room, we've done that too, which means for all of us, here's the truth, we are all at risk of wasting our lives because of the very real monster of greed. We can sit here in this room today and go, you know what, greed's not something I struggle with. It might be. And here's the thing, greed wants you to think that. Greed wants you to think that, there, that it's nowhere near you, even though it is right behind you, right? It's like those movies, like, turn around. It's right behind you. It wants you to believe that, that it's not a threat. And so we know what greed is. Greed is this extreme, unhealthy appetite for more. We know what it does. Here's what greed does. It wastes our lives. So last thing, how do we kill it? How do you kill greed? How do you take it down? Well, the first thing that you have to have is courage, right? You have to have the courage to, to find it. You have to have the courage to face it. And you have to have the courage to hunt it down in your life. You have to have courage. That's where we start. It's interesting to me in the Bible that when we find the word courage and courageous, right, right before courage and courageous, all throughout the Bible, you usually find the word take or the phrase be of, be of good or be of great. So take courage or be of good, great, or good or great courage. Be courageous. It's interesting that, that that word, when we find the word courage, take, and be of good or be of great courage, be courageous, those things usually come right before. The Old Testament word for, for courage means to be resolute or unmovable. Like don't give up. Be resolute. Don't be movable. Don't shift. Don't concede. Don't give up territory. That's what the Old Testament word for courage means. The, the New Testament word means boldness, which means this. You don't sink back into the pack, right? Things that are bold tend to stand out and stand up. So that's what this word courage means. And I'm saying all this because here's why. If we don't take courage with us to hunt these monsters down, if we don't seek to first become courageous people, if we're wishy-washy instead of being resolute or unmovable, right, if, if we begin to justify or make excuses or, or try to make things okay or give, or give territory or make allowances for these monsters in our lives, right, if we're timid instead of bold, we don't stand a chance. You don't stand a chance. You're going to see this theme develop over the next few weeks. Every weapon at our disposal that's capable of taking these monsters down, it has courage as a part of it. Every weapon that we talk about has courage as a part of it. Why? Because without courage, you're taking an unloaded, unsharpened, and ineffective weapon into battle. It's like taking an empty shotgun to take down the monster. A dull sword, a dull spear, whatever it is, it's ineffective. It's not going to work. You don't stand a chance. So courage has got to be a part of every aspect of this. Now, to kill greed, here's what we need. To stay on guard against greed, here's what we need. We need courageous simplicity. Again, if you're taking notes, grab, grab a picture of that. That's what we need. Courageous simplicity. That's the silver bullet 
that's going to take down the monster of greed. It's its one weakness. In the spirit of the disciplines, Dallas Willard, he defines simplicity like this. He, he calls it frugality. So frugality, or, or in our case, courageous simplicity, it's this. It's abstaining from using money or goods in a way that gratifies our own desire, our own hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. So, what, so what's courageous simplicity? That. Abstaining from using money or goods to gratify our own desires, our own hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. Another one of the authors that I read this week would define courageous simplicity like this. It's the, and I love this. It's the arrangement of life around a few consistent purposes, excluding what's unnecessary for human well-being. So, so what does this look like? I mean, those are great definitions. What does it look like? One of the stories that I read this week, kind of doing research, kind of takes place around the same time that, that Jesus is talking about greed. In, in ancient Sparta, the Spartan people lived underneath something called sumptuary laws. I don't know if you've ever heard of these. Sumptuary laws, these were laws that were designed to restrict excess personal spending in order to prevent extravagance and luxury. And here's how this worked in Sparta, right? Like, in, this is Sparta, like in 300. If you were a Spartan person, you could not own a house, nor could you have furniture that, that, that had to be made with tools more elaborate than an axe or a saw, right? So everything you owned, right? Your house and your furniture could only be made with two tools. You're only allowed to use two tools, an axe and a saw. Make your house with an axe and a saw. All the furniture in your house, two tools, an axe and a saw. Well, this, this needs a third tool. Can't have it. I need a hammer. Nope. Axe or a saw, that's all you can have. If you need something more than an axe or a saw, you don't need it. If it takes something more elaborate than these two things, you don't need it. It's hard to imagine something like that flying today. I mean, I feel like I have this conversation with my kids all the time, right? You don't need that. You don't need that. Well, yeah, but I need it. But if I had this, you don't need that. Do you need that or want that? Like, we're already swimming in Pokemon cards. I need another pack, right? And I, this is the crazy thing. So many parents in here are like, amen, right? I walked around the building on Friday and took pictures of all of the random piles of Pokemon cards throughout this building, right? It is becoming an epidemic, right? And I'm like, this looks a lot like my house. Just random piles of Pokemon cards, right? But I need another one. Do you, though? It's hard to imagine that kind of thing flying today. The American dream, right, the American dream is all about making something from nothing. So, so the question is this, Brad, what are we supposed to do then? Are we supposed to go, like, sell all of our stuff and, and sit on furniture and sleep on beds and live in a house that can only be built with an axe and a saw? No. The key point, right, don't miss this. The key point that I want us to make sure that we get is, is when we start talking about greed, it's really easy for us to point our, our fingers at people who are wealthy, and assume that the only way they got there was by being greedy. It's easy to point our fingers at people that are wealthy and think, well, the only way they got there is that they hoarded up all of their stuff and they didn't share it with anybody else. That kind of mindset, right, that kind of finger pointing and accusation is really more in line with envy. We're going to talk more about that next week, right? But what I want us to do is look at Jesus' parable one more time. And I want us to see what greed really does, what it's all about, and how ultimately we kill it, and who it affects so let's go back through this, right? Jesus says, the, the, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what am I going to do? I got nowhere to store all my stuff. 
And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, my small barns, and I'll build bigger ones. And then I can store all of my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, spiritual soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Kick back. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. And God says to him, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? Jesus lands the plane, right? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, the issue for this guy and the issue when it comes to greed in our lives, the thing that makes this person greedy, the thing that makes us greedy, isn't that he possesses or that maybe even some of us possess more than anyone else. What makes him greedy is how he chooses to use it how he chooses to use his wealth and possessions and how he places his trust in them to provide for him spiritually and physically in life. Here's the truth. Greed is not about the quantity of our possessions. It's about the misuse and mistrust spiritually and in how we live our lives. That's what greed's about. Dallas Willard, he says this. He says, it must be noted that the failures of greed concern the use of goods, not merely their possession. Get this, to possess riches is to have a right to say how they will or will not be used. Whatever you possess, and when he talks about riches, he's not talking about being rich. He's talking about the things that you possess. Whatever you possess, whatever you own, you have a right to say how it will and will not be used. That's what he's saying here. He says to use riches, right, on the other hand, is to cause them to either be consumed for something that we desire or to be transferred to others. And he closes, he says, but the trust in riches means that we will also come to love them, and when we love them, we will come to serve them. See, the monster of greed can overtake any one of us, whether you are materially rich or poor or somewhere in between. Anybody can be greedy. Those with a whole lot can be greedy. Those with not much at all can be greedy. And those in between, we can all be greedy. Willard, he says this, the spiritually wise person, the person who does not waste their life, has always known that the frivolous consumption corrupts the soul away from trust in and worship of and service to God. And it injures ourselves and our neighbors as well. Here's the truth, church. You You can be spiritually wise and also be materially wealthy. And you can be spiritually foolish and also be materially poor. It's not about what you have or how much you have. It's about how you put what you have to use and how much, how much, how much you trust in what you have to provide for you in your life. So regardless, regardless of our material status, courageous simplicity, here's what it does. It frees us from meaningless pursuits and the danger of a wasted life. One author I read this week says, simplicity as a settled style of life frees us from the pursuit of indifferent things. When you kill the greed monster with the silver bullet of courageous simplicity, I I know the the fear, if I kill greed, What's going to take that space is is emptiness, it's loss, it's lack, right? I'm not going to have, I'm going to lose this, I'm not going to have this, I won't have this stuff anymore, I will lack. That's not the truth. That's what the greed monster wants you to believe. When you kill the greed monster, your life becomes free of indifference, things that don't matter. You know, like when you're indifferent, it's like, eh. Can you imagine if, if your life was dedicated to, eh, 
Some of us are like, yeah, I can't imagine that. That's what it's dedicated to. You become free from dedicating your life to indifference. You become free from debt. I read a ton about debt. We're going to talk more about it next week. But debt isn't just something that, that brings stress on our lives. Debt is something that, that speaks to our worth and our value as humans. When we've got a lot of debt, it makes us feel less valuable. We have a lot of debt. It consumes our minds. It consumes our thoughts. This courageous simplicity, you know what it does? It eliminates debt. You don't have debt. People back in Jesus' day, they didn't, they didn't believe in debt. They would build onto houses. When they had enough money to build what they needed to build, they would build it. When they ran out of money, they stopped. There was no such thing as credit or a loan. They had what they had. They used their resources. They made sure before they went out to build something. Jesus even talks about this. Before you go out and build something, right, make sure you got enough to cover the build. If you don't, you're going to look foolish. Courageous simplicity, it frees us from indifference and debt. And here's what it does with our lives. When you kill greed, what floods into your life is newfound purpose and meaning. And so in your seats, you got, you got a card. Some of them, unfortunately, printed upside down. So sorry about that. Just turn them. There's a challenge. Every week in this series, we're going to do a challenge. Take this home with you, right? I want you to, to remember this, right? So courageous simplicity. Again, take a picture of this. Write this down if you like to write down notes. Courageous simplicity is abstaining from using money or goods in a way that gratifies our own desire or our own hunger for status, glamour, or luxury, right? Courageous simplicity is arranging our lives not around everything, but around a few consistent purposes and excluding what's unnecessary for human well-being. So on your card, there's a handful of questions. There's a handful of questions on your card that I need, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you're a student, like, this is not just an adult thing, and this is not just a married thing, right? It, if you are single, if you're a student, if you're an adult, if you're married, you're going to go, I, I want you to go home, and this week, spend a little time each day working your way through these questions. Make a list. The first question is this, purpose and meaning, the most important thing. What are you currently arranging your life around? And searching for meaning from and giving your time to that's unnecessary or won't last. It's not necessary for, for your survival, and it's not going to last. Just like this guy with the bigger, bigger barns, who's going to get that? Like if you walk out of Ruck Regal Parkway and get hit by a bus, who's going to get that? Who's going to care about that? Second question, wealth. Where are you spending your money on unnecessary things? We're doing this right now in our house. It is like... The purge in our house. It's like, do you really need five streaming services? Well, yeah, you know, there's like, you know, this one's got this show. And this. Yeah, but is it necessary? Do you need all that? Where are you spending your money or your time or your resources on unnecessary things? Possessions. Here you go. What do you own that you don't need and or never use? Do you own anything in your life that you don't need? Or that you don't ever use. It's like, yeah, I got this thing for Christmas a couple years ago. It's still in the box. Could somebody else maybe use that? There's somebody else in your life, you go, hey, you actually could use this. What do you have? What do you own that you don't need or you never use? Next question, how could courageous simplicity give you more margin? 
create more margin in your finances, create more margin in your time, create more, more margin in your schedule? How could, how could simplifying your life create more margin? And the next one is this, how could that margin be used to serve others or support the church? I know a lot of us, it's like, we give right, like our, our, we're, we're at our capacity. At least in our house, a lot of the times that's where we find ourselves. We don't have a lot of margin, right? Because life's expensive and it's getting more expensive. But the truth of the matter is, we can look at life and go, yeah, well, you know, inflation, life's just getting more expensive. And we, we can blame it on other things. Or, you know, what we can do, take some ownership and some responsibility and gut up and stare the monster in the face and use courageous simplicity to take it down. I'm not going to point my fingers at anybody else anymore. That's what we talked about in our house. I'm not pointing my finger at anybody else anymore. It's our responsibility. This, the, the inflation stuff and all that, it's not my fault. It's not your fault. It's not our fault. But you know what? Your life and your marriage and your friendships and your kids, and you, what, it is your responsibility. So it's time to gut up and take some responsibility. And use courageous simplicity. The silver bullet of courageous simplicity, which is way easier said than done. You should watch me. You should watch me hitting the cancel button on our DirecTV stream account. I'm going, no, like it was hard. And I know it's like, really, Brad, that's the hardest thing? No, there's harder stuff. But I'm just saying, things like that that are super trivial, they start to get attached. They get their claws into us. It's just a streaming service. How can you create some margin? I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship. If you want to, to, to say yes to Jesus today, the life that Jesus offers, I'd love to meet you down front. We can talk about what that looks like. If you want to join our church, be a part of this community, would love to chat with you about that as well. If you need prayer, uh, there's opportunities to pray with folks. I'll be down on this side. Nick and Christy will be over here. I think we'll have some people in the back as well. If you want to pray with someone today or just need prayer, we would love to pray with you. We're going to worship together. Let's, let's, let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. And Father, we ask for courage. Jesus, we ask for courage. The same courage that you took to a cross to sacrifice and give up your life for us, Lord, we, we need that. We need that in our lives to, to get the claws of greed out of our appetites, out of our stomachs, out of our eyes, the things that we want, the things that we become addicted to. Jesus, we ask for courage. We ask for grace. We ask for mercy. We ask for your spirit to create more room in us for you.